Hey fellow tennis nerds, I'm here with Richard Parnell, famous from Parnell Knot. He's very well versed in stringing and everything around it in the whole racket business and tennis industry. Thanks for uh, having me here at your place in Mikas uh, in Costa del Sol. Tell me about yourself and how you got into stringing. I started stringing when I was, well the first racket I touched was when I was about eight. I never really finished a racket until I was nine. When I was nine, I actually managed to finish it on my on my own. There might have been a misread in there, <laughs> yeah. and that, that was a Max Ply Junior because it was wood at that time. So what comes to string as well? Well, as long as you with a wooden racket, you knew that the zigzag at the top was your short side. Yeah. So it was very very easy. You just you knew stick the zigzag on the left, short side on the left. So it wasn't. They were all the same. Yeah. It was actually once you got into the change into graphite and aluminium and all the rest of it, suddenly you had different patterns. Yeah. So for any stringer who was used to just stringing wood, it suddenly became slightly more complicated because wood was always the same. The yeah. inseam mains and uh, and you know, none missed at the top, one skip at the bottom, and uh, then suddenly the 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 graphite or any other type of racket suddenly you had different patterns, different skips. Yeah. So it became slightly more more complicated. But the wooden racket, yeah. I mean I started off with wood. That was forty four years ago. So I've been stringing for about forty four years and I did um, I used to string in the shop. Okay. Uh, we have a sports shop. I used to string mainly for the for clubs around here, for different people. People used to bring the racket and I string it. And I mean I was just a normal basic shop stringer, club stringer, whatever you want to call it. Um, I didn't really do any competition at all and I wasn't particularly that good. I was, I was a normal stringer. Yeah. And then suddenly I went to a workshop in 1989 and I realised how little I knew. And it was at that point that I thought, there's more to this and I can get better. Yeah. And ever since then I've been trying to, trying to improve. And I always like to look back every, say, 10 years and see if there is a difference between what I was and what I, what I am now. And every 10 years, you always see a big difference. There's a difference and you keep on. I would still like to look, to look in 10 years time, look back at now yeah. and uh, see oh, what a big difference, what, how, much I, how much I've learned. Because it is something that is constantly evolving. So it's not, oh, well, I know everything and uh, I just need to carry on streaming. No, no, exactly. It does evolve and there's not necessarily the technologies in the rackets, but I mean, obviously grommets and uh, things like that do affect the, yeah. how, we, how we do our craft or our arts or whatever you want to call it. But yeah, there's definitely things that do evolve where the aesthetics are much more important now. Um, how we go from one string to the other, which pattern we use, whether it's around the world, um, which type of around the world, box pattern, universal, there's so many different ones. Mm -hmm. And you just need to have a little bit of an eye to see which one would suit which racket, which pattern, which skips. So, so in 89 I did that workshop, realised how little I knew. I started working on that, looking at as much as I could whenever I was anywhere where there was a machine I was seeing, I was looking, seeing how they would do things, whatever um, tools they had. Mm -hmm. And um, I, basically I was a sponge. So I, I soaked up as much as I could from all different places, worked on my technique, and from there then I was asked to be on the team, the Barcelona Olympics in 92. Wow. And in the end I was a reserve on there because there was another stringer who came over from Japan. What made that sort of particularly difficult was he would, he was, the racket he was using was a head pro tour, 630. Yeah. So it was um, smallish head very tight pattern and he, the rackets were made especially for him and they were very, very stiff. 
Now he was using an isospeed, isospeed professional, yeah. and he was using it at 40 kilos. Now 40 kilos, you put a kink in it or put a clamp on it, it will, it'll break. Yeah. I got there, I got to the tournaments. I didn't do qualies, so I got there after they, they had a few problems with a few issues, let's say, with, uh, um, with the stringing. Yeah. So I took over stringing his rackets, and I actually only broke one string uh, while I was stringing them for, the, for him to get to the final, and that was because I put a clamp on the, on the string when I was going so that I didn't have to do the whole short side and then do oh. the, the, um, the long side mains and then the crosses. And in the end, that racket, I had to do the whole short side in one go, tie off, and then go and do the um, the rest of it, yeah. which obviously is a no-no. We just we don't yeah, do yeah, it yeah, no, yeah. because of the deformation of the frame. Let's try and get it as symmetrical yeah. as, as possible. Well, this racket was so stiff. Even if you did the whole short side and nothing on the long, the frame did not move. It was that stiff. Yeah. So it was wonderful. That you just had to be really careful whether you were stepping on the string, whatever it was. So once I broke the string by putting a clamp on it, which normally doesn't happen, then I just didn't use a clamp to free up uh, to be able to, to string it uh, both sides symmetrically. So I just do the short side, finish that tie off, and again with a parnell knot, yeah. and long side, and then uh, the rest of the racket. And he would have it done, he would ask us to string it four hours before, because he knew that the 40 kilos, once he got to his match, it would be about 36 because of the tension loss. Yeah. So did that all the way through, he won the tournament. And from there, he just carried on on his run. It's an anecdote that happened there was um, Ivan Istovich was, yeah. uh, I don't know, he was probably top five at the time or something like that. He was playing the tournament as well. And I was stringing for him and he was stringing full gut. And came into Piggy's racket up and I just finished it and taken it off the machine. So literally, I took it off the machine and handed it to him, and he like knocked it on his hand. He said, "Half a kilo less." So I said, "Okay, so you're ready to go." <laughs> gave me the racket. I said, "Come back in an hour." So I said, "I'm a bit busy." So came back an hour later, and I handed him the same racket. He went, "Perfect." <laughs> well, <laughs> so it, obviously, I mean, you give it an hour, it yeah. will relax slightly. And natural yeah. gut. Half a kilo. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, natural gut loses five percent, and it's li lineal. So I mean, it'll lose the five percent, and then it's it stays um, absolutely uh, stable yeah. until it until it breaks. Yeah. So I knew that if he came back an hour later, it would have relaxed slightly. Cause it had literally just come off the machine. Yeah. So um, so I gave it back, gave the same racket back to him. I think the next one I did after that again was in 95 and that was in Valencia mm -hmm. and that one I did with uh, Jean-Claude Boldini, a uh, French stringer, very very good stringer from back in the day, he was mm -hmm. one of the, there were two stringers from, from Babylon, from the Babylon team who used to follow the tour because Babylon used to offer uh, free stringing for the players who were under contract. Oh, okay. Even if they weren't official stringer in the tournament, they would set up uh, a setup in a hotel next to it, or in the players' hotel, just to give, uh, just to give their players who had an international string contract. This was before the brackets came. Yes. Was, uh, Lucien Doguez and Jean-Claude Bondini. I did Valencia with Jean-Claude. He's no longer with us, I'm afraid. That's a shame. But uh, he was a, um, a good. He was a very good stringer. He just yeah. did nothing but that. So literally, they were just going from one tournament to the next, to the next, to the next, because at the time, everyone was using uh, Babylon strings, guts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it was a uh, high demand. And I did Valencia with him, and that one was 
you had Carlos Moya, who was actually playing qualies in that, and he got to the final. He actually played, I think he played Pepe Imaf, who you'll know from Marbella. Yeah, yeah, from the... From Puerto Romano. Uh, well, Pepe Imaf, he, very strange guy, really lovely guy, and he used to play with Yonix Racket, but as he, his, his best friend, or his, a very good friend of his, was the marketing manager at Wilson, mm -hmm. he used to play with a Yonix Racket with a Wilson uh, logo painted on it. So, uh, so we went through and did that, and then from there, then I did Paris Bercy in, in, I don't know, 80, 80, 90 something, 97, 98, something mm -hmm. like that, and a few different ones. And then from there, then once we got into the 2000s, then I started doing uh, Wimbledon in 2002, mm -hmm. and then from then for until now, still, uh, still doing it. I've done uh, Roland Garros and Australia. Yeah. I still haven't done the US, but um, that's one. Ron, one Ron and I do speak occasionally, and you know, sort of, he asks me what motivation I'd have for, yeah. for doing it, which is which is a very good question. I do I do a lot less tournaments now because I'm just busy doing other things. Yeah. Whether it's well, I'm, I actually I enjoy teaching as much as as anything, and one of the things that I have I have a good eye to look at techniques and how we can actually improve and, and um, take out slight um, errors. Are they errors? It depends. It, mm -hmm. it depends on the eye of the beholder, really, because I mean... Bad habits, perhaps. Uh, yeah, it, there's different ways of doing things, because it's not all black and white. Yeah. It, there are different ways, so some people do it a certain way, some people do it another way. For instance, I always string the same way for every string. Mm -hmm. So I have my technique works perfectly with natural gut. Yeah. So if it works with natural gut, it will work with every other string. So I never ever have to change my technique. It is always the same. So I treat every other string like it was natural gut. Whereas you have other stringers who will string their normal way, but when it comes to natural gut, they have to change slightly. Yeah. Well, I don't like that. I think that if you have the same technique, then suddenly it becomes, that is your technique. You never have to change. And if it works with everything, then it means it's... Then you can just keep improving that technique instead yeah. of just, yeah. And you can always add things into it. So if there's something that you suddenly think, okay, well, what about this? Because that's a good thing when you do tournaments is you see a lot of other really good stringers. Yeah. And you can see how they're doing something. And then you say, okay, well, that's... Well, what about if I do this and change it? Mm -hmm. And I will normally try something at the beginning of Wimbledon because I know that if I like it the first time I try it, by the end of Wimbledon, after doing so many rackets, it is suddenly now part of my technique. Yeah. I don't have to work at making it part of my technique. It's just that after two weeks of doing all those rackets, it is part it's of your there, technique. It's yeah. ingrained. In it's ingrained. Once you, once you finish, then it, um, it becomes part of your, yeah. of your technique. So um, there's something that, for instance, the Yonex loop in, in badminton, which is where when you go out to the last main, Mm -hmm. You go out to the last main and you, you actually tension two at a time with the Yonex loop. Yeah. You go out to the last main and come back, back to the penultimate and then pull on that. Well, in tennis, obviously, you don't double pull. So I saw that and I thought, well, you can do that and get closer to a tie off hole. Yeah. So that's when I said, well, the Parnell loop, which is you do one and the other. So yeah. you do the outside, come back in, and you actually add extra tension on both of them and then you can actually pull tension from the outside one onto the, the looser one, which is further in, and get a more even tension across the, the string bed. 
and you've got close to the tie off, which means you've got a more exact, um, more exact string tension yeah. on the mains. How did you come up with the, the knot? I was trying to do, like, I was trying to do another knot, and that came out. So it was like, oh, that looks okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then I tried it, and I liked it. And then from there, then I've always used it. Then I was at Wimbledon, and there was an American stringer there who, well, there were a couple of Americans who were stringing there, and they were, they had this knot that was so complicated that you had to pull from the top, then from the bottom, and then there was like three parts where you had a different pull. And I said, mm. that's so complicated. I said, why don't you just do, do this? And I just did that one, pulled it right hand, closed it, and I said, it's done. It's all. And then someone filmed it and said, the parallel knots. <laughs> And from there, and that was back in about 2002 or three. It was 2003, I think. And then from there, then that was put onto the internet. It's just, it's just gone out there. Yeah. And I didn't actually do a video of it until about, probably about 10 years later, something like that, maybe even more. I was just yeah. busy doing other things, and someone else did um, a video on you. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of you little. He does quite a few videos on online on YouTube. And one of them was my knot. Okay. Yeah, and uh, he did one, and, and it was really, really informative. It was really good. Yeah. And uh, and then I said, well, I might as well do one as it's you know mine. Well, it's got my name on it. Yeah. I might, of as well, uh, might as well do it. So I did. Uh, I did one, which I put onto my channel on the on, on YouTube. And now it's the official knot at the Madrid Open, the Masters One Thousand, and it's one of two authorized knots. At Wimbledon, wow. so you can use the Pro knot or the Parnell knot, and then if you want to use something else, you have to be authorised to use it. You have to yeah. actually show it to um, Paul Skip, the head stringer, or um, AD, or one of the people in charge of front desk. Yeah. Uh, but normally, it's it's down. Most people use one or the other of those two, I and mean, they're pretty much the most used uh, knots in professional stringing. A lot of people. Um, home stringers or people who haven't particularly had a chance to do workshops or see other stringers will use a double half hitch. Yeah. Um, double half hitch, yeah, it's been around for years, it, it is what it is, but it doesn't protect the anchor string. There, there's better knots out there yeah, that aren't particularly um, more complicated. And the parallel knot is actually a double half hitch, it's just one loop goes through the other, which protects the anchor string. Mm. So it's, um, it's definitely step forward. There's no reason not to use even the Pro Knot. I mean, the Pro Knot's really, I mean, that's a really good knot. So there's the Wilson Knot as well, yeah. which is almost the same as the Parnell Knot, it's just instead of going through, it is behind it. There's, there's a slight change, yeah. which when you look at it, you can actually see the, the difference. Parnell Knot got known because of the, the video going on on the internet and because it's so easy to do and you can put it up and cinch it with your hand. Yeah. So you don't have to start pulling it and risking breaking the string and um, so there's that and then as I had the Parnell knots which was quite well known I thought well why don't I make a company out of it so I started a company called Parnell knots and I made um, a range of clothes with yeah. t-shirts with specific string uh, designed apparel and from there then I also have the Parnell pad which um, that I pretty much sold all over the world. It's used in all the Grand Slams. Um, most most stringers have um, have a Parnell pad, mainly because you don't really want a starting clamp or any tool going directly against a frame no. where you can leave a mark. Yeah. The last thing you want to do is if a player brings in a brand new frame and then there's a mark on it, you just don't you just don't want it. No. So it's very easy to um, 
to solve that. So the Parnell pared down pretty much, that's, I've sold that all over the world. And I was drinking at the Japan Open, and people went past and saw my name there, and they started coming in, having some photos and different things, and then, oh, have you got any pads with you? And literally, I was selling them out of the back door. What? It was uh, nice. in, in Japan, yeah. In Japan, it's uh, my knot is taught. When they do this, uh, there's a guy there called Dai Dai, a stringer, mm -hmm. who I did uh, Roland Garros with back in, I don't know, 2009 or 10. Yeah. And he does a lot of the workshops in, in Japan, and he teaches my knot. Which they've actually given a Japanese name as well. I'm lucky enough to, to have uh, a following there with uh, all the stringers who are hardcore stringers who like to do things a certain way, then they like my, uh, my stuff. So I do send um, pads and t shirts and different things to, to Japan. Or when I see Japanese people, they always take a pile back for their friends and yeah. whatever it is. So um, when we do a symposium and some Japanese come over, then we do. We do that. Korea's not bad as well. Oh, okay. I did a workshop with Head mm -hmm. um, in in China, and the Koreans came. Instead of us flying to, to Seoul to, to Korea to actually do another workshop there, they flew down to us. So we did a workshop. Um, Dennis Fabian and I, yeah. who's yeah. the product manager, great guy off the Head. Yep. We do our workshops together, and this one we were doing in in China, and the and the Koreans came down and. They were all they were lining up to buy pads and they said, Oh, we've got some pads with you. I said, Yeah. So it was literally lining up. And it was all done in, in Chinese whatever. I mean it's a Chinese currency. And it was just literally it was just I mean I didn't even know what they were there. I just worked out what the exchange rate was roughly. They were just yeah. giving it and uh, which was actually quite uh, quite strange. I did actually have someone in China faint. I was he was he was actually stringing a he was stringing and they were practicing and I was going around helping different people and as I was helping him then he was getting more and more nervous and so I turned around to go to someone else and then I heard a boom and he'd actually he'd fainted and fallen oh backwards into the translation booth because we were having simultaneous translation while we were giving the workshop and he fell backwards into it and, and then I thought oh, you know he said well no he's a bit nervous because you were teaching him or you were you were helping him and he fainted that night at dinner he was there and he came over to Paul, so I gave him one of the Parnell pads and said, look, we'll sit down before you get it. But I said, look, here's one, uh, here's one for you. It was in different places in the world. Uh, the Parnell Knot products are very well received up here and they tend to, people tend to like them. So I That's try great. to keep the, the quality as high as possible. Same with the tools, Parnell Tech tools, which I, it took me a long time to actually source some that I thought were good enough to, to put my name on. I'm even in contact with someone to put my name on a machine. That would be a signature model. Yeah. That uh, that would be good. And again, it just needs to be of the right quality. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, especially with machines, so many parts that there, need to There is, there yeah. is. At the moment, I'm not, obviously I'm doing a lot with uh, with head and she. I've used, uh, used that extensively in, well, in Madrid, at the tournament, in Madrid Masters, that was, that was good. And then, obviously, around the world where we give workshops, and I always use that machine, so it's really, really easy to use. It's yeah. very comfortable. The clamps are light, so it, it doesn't take a lot of effort to, to string, a, string a racket on it. No. The quality's good because of Dennis's uh, influence or yeah. um, his his help on that. So now what we're doing is waiting for the, for the new one to come out. Yeah. And uh, let's, see when, let's see when that happens. And, Obviously, everything moves forward, so there's, there'll obviously be uh, be an improvement on this one in one way or another. So, yeah. 
that's, that's good. One question I think will come up, how, how many rackets do you string? Like if you were in a Grand Slam, like on that period, how many rackets do you have an estimate or, or how many you string? I string? Yeah. Um, I don't really know, I think it's about 400. For, for, a, for, a, for a Grand Slam? For a Grand Slam, between, yeah. three, of, between three and 400. Oh, yeah. So over the two weeks. And there's some people who are there who will do 500. Mm. Um, if they really, really are busy, they can get up to 600. Mm. But uh, that is, that's... Insane. Yeah. yeah, that is, that's a lot. But um, I'm even between three and four, I think I do between three and 400. And that was this year, three and 400. And then there was four days gap. And then we went to Hamburg. Mm. I was uh, with the head team. Well, Dennis was um, head of the team, he yeah. after us all. I was looking after the stringers. There was Kai, Kai Plitz, German stringer, very good stringer. Him and I, he and I were, let's say, the lead stringers. Yeah. And then there was Nicky Rowan, who yeah. you know Nicky. Yeah. Nicky was uh, on the team. We had Martin Mann as well. And we had Alex. Alex, who, it was his first tournament. Mm -hmm. So he came in, um, saw what it was all about. What would be the main, do you think, challenge as going stringing for in a big tournament? Uh, well, for the stringer? Yeah. Consistency. You are talking about high volume. So you, I mean, I've had someone come into the stringing room at Wimbledon and say, I was thinking of applying to join the stringing team for Wimbledon because I, I do five rackets a day you know, at home and I think that um, I could be a, an active member of the, of the team. Yeah, I mean five rackets a day for a, for a club stringer, for a you know home stringer, whatever it is, a normal stringer, might be a lot. But I think that was probably about eleven o'clock in the morning, and I think I'd already done thirteen that day at eleven o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So five a day doesn't um, doesn't. No, no, it's not. Like it's, it's not. not. Um, yeah. There again, a lot of people don't realise what tournament stringing is about until they actually step into it. Yeah, and I have heard the case of a stringer flying down to Australia to be part of the team, walking into the room, seeing what was going on, and going back to the airport and flying out. <laughs> he said, no, I, not cannot, for me. I, cannot, I cannot do this. Yeah. Which is fine, I mean, mm -hmm. it's not for everyone. And, no. and it does, and stringing is only actually a small part of being a tournament stringer, because obviously you have to be able to string a racket quite quickly. Yep. We normally work on, let's say, five rackets every two hours. Mm. Because you've got, you know, you never know what's going to happen. No. You've got you've got to cut stringers out, or some places mm. you don't. There's already cuts out for you. You have to measure your string out, you have to look at all the instructions. You have to get everything you might have to do. And it needs to be spot on, correct? I mean, after his... Everything uh, has to be perfect. Yeah. I mean, that, that's taken, um, that's no. for granted. Yeah. And we will take that for granted that the racket's going to come out. No misweaves, all the strings straight. Yeah. And, they're going to be the same DTs, yeah. or at if there's a difference, it can be maximum one, mm. one DT, or if they're the same. Uh, the, same yeah. the consistency is that the first racket you do, and it might be at six o'clock in the morning, has to be the same quality as the last one you do at eleven o'clock at night. Yeah. And you can't say, "Oh, well, I was tired." That doesn't happen. No. If you can't do the same quality at six in the morning to eleven at night. Then you shouldn't be there. No. It's, it's, it's literally, it's literally that, because it is consistency, and that's why the some of the top players have their own streaming uh, service, where they take, they pay a company to travel with them to the Masters 1000 and the Grand Slams, because what they're looking for is consistency, yeah. and always so, getting the uh, the same results. Exactly, and that's the so it's, that is actually a, that isn't a reflection 
on the streaming services. What it is, it's, it just means that they want to guarantee that they get the same every time. And it's so important for them that they want to pay a little money for this as well, yeah. because you mean, obviously you're paying partly for the whole service, but also the, the flights and accommodation and everything, you know, it's... it's uh, the, they have different levels of service. Yeah. And uh, someone like Roger Federer is obviously paying the top. Yeah. Um, Novak, Andy, they're all stand mm. there with this company and really good streamers. Yeah. Know what they're doing, stream the same racket over and over and over again. They always get the same results. Yeah. So that's that's what the players are paying for. So um, they don't take any chances with any small details. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of money involved. Of course. So if you just look at it from the from that side, then they're really all they're doing is they're investing. Yeah. They're investing in taking out any variables. Exactly. So um, from there, so for a stringer who goes into tour stringing, it is um, consistency, it's being able to stand behind a machine for 12 hours, 15 hours, yeah. and be able to crank out the same, not make mistakes, and if you do make a mistake, admit it, and just correct. move on, yeah. correct it, yeah. and then it just means you have to move if you've got a certain amount of racket to do for a certain time, mm. and suddenly you've made a mistake on one, you have to make that time up on the other rackets, so then maybe you have to step it up a gear, so you yeah. have to go a little bit faster. Which is why we work on five rackets every two hours. Yeah. So some people, I, mean, I see it a lot on the internet, where, oh I do seven rackets, eight rackets, or I do five rackets an hour for, for ten hours. Okay. Um, yeah. There are certain stringers who are really, really quick. Yeah. One thing that tends to happen is, a quick stringer tends to be a, a loose stringer. Yeah. Most people who string tight, and I'm saying most, and that is a generalization, yeah. but most people who string really quickly, the DTs come out lower. And um, I tend to get very high DTs. So, uh, so a lot of people do measure it on, if I get it, then what do I get compared to Richard? Yeah. And most people come up one, at least one DT uh, lower. There's very few who get exactly the same DT as... Because you have a rhythm, I mean obviously you have the skill set, but also it must be maybe better to have a rhythm that's steady. Like that you know, okay, yeah. I'm stringing this record, it's yeah, it's instead of just going speed, speed, and then you, you it goes a bit like this, you know. Yeah, I mean it's a lot to do with how, how much you touch the, the strings after you finish, okay. or while you're going along. I mean, the ideal thing is, when you finish the racket, you take it off without having to straighten the strings. And without touching them. As soon as you start moving the strings around, you get tension loss, and then you get something that I like to call negative movement. Because obviously, you get positive movement and negative movement. Mm. Let's say positive movement is snapback, let's yeah, say, yeah, yeah. and you're actually getting something from it. So you're getting something positive from that movement. Negative movement is if you string a racket and the, the strings aren't straight. When you put them back into, into place, so you put them straight afterwards, that string will always have a tendency to move more. Mm. So apart from having tension loss, so you'll get a lower DT, you'll also have negative movement where it's not actually bringing anything to you. It's, it's, yeah. not, it's not doing anything for you, it's actually negative. There's that, and I tend to, I try and get most rackets as straight as possible, so I don't have to take touch the string afterwards. I might move it slightly with my nail, where there's one where it's moved slightly, so I just put it back into yeah. place, and that's it. So I get a high DT. I mean, it basically goes back to consistency, and then working on your your technique. Uh, for tall stringing, it is pressure. Yeah. Can you handle the pressure? Because if you suddenly look down and you've got 15 rackets for 12 o'clock, 
or for 10 o'clock. Mm. Okay, you just need to go through them. You need to work out how long it's going to take you with a little bit of a margin there too. A margin of error, so if you do make a mistake, and let's face it, we all make mistakes, we're human. Yeah. So, do misweaves happen at Wimbledon? Of course they happen. Mm. Do they go out the door? Never. That's the difference. Yeah. And if you do make a mistake, you just say, oops, can't let that one go, I need to redo it. Okay, it happens. Yeah. I mean, we did 4,600 and... It was 4,602 or 4,603 rackets this year at Wimbledon, which is a lot of rackets. Yeah. If one or two you have a missweave or you make a mistake on the tension or you, you need to, to, to do it again, it's not a biggie. You know, it's as long as the racket going out um, is on the room is, is of the room is so the, the the quality is always the same. Yeah. Then and we check every racket with the DT. So we check with the ERT or one of these little things. Yeah. Uh, we check the the DT, and we know if there's a problem. So we did the same thing in Hamburg, where we had a, a racket come in. It was done, and then it was like that doesn't sound right. Let's do another one. Did another one, and that one was totally different on the DT. So there was a problem with the clamps, sorted it out, yeah. and we caught the problem before it went out of the room. Yeah, that's one of the things that the, the ELT three hundred is is good for. It it means that we can actually control a little bit the quality of our work because however professional we are, there's obviously it's still done by hand. Yeah, of course. So we have to um, we have to look after that and. Uh, the tournament stream, it's definitely stamina, so you need to be able to stand behind a machine, not have cramps and bad back and bad neck and... And how many hours do you mean you start early and you have um, breaks? Like well, oh no, on the bad days, let's say the bad days which would be, let's say a grand slam. The bad day would be the Sunday before main draw, because you've got people there who are practicing, playing the next day yeah. and all the rest of it. They're all nervous, they might have a few more rackets done. Um, so the Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, we will do probably 1,500 rackets in those three days. So it's a lot of rackets. Yeah. It's a lot of rackets, and so at Wimbledon there's 14 of us. That's a, that's a fair fair amount each. Yeah. So after those three days, I mean, you after the after the first two days, so Sunday, uh, Monday and Tuesday, you've lost half the main half the main draw. So then suddenly it becomes easier. Still, you're still doing high 300s, 400s a day. So you're still doing um, a lot of rackets, but then as the racket numbers come down, you start losing stringers as well. Okay, so they, they leave them then? Yeah, exactly, because there's stringers who are there for a certain amount of time, so they might only be there for the first four days or five days. So as the racket numbers come down, you start going down, instead of 14 stringers, you've got 12. And then the next couple of days, you're down to 10. And then you end up at the end where there's just three of you. Um, so that you are you are pretty constant all the way through, because then then the double, then you've got the doubles, and then once the double, then you've got the juniors. And yeah, yeah. So it seniors. keeps on going. So there's there's always um, stuff, there. and that's without taking into account any company that is doing a product launch or it has got new models that they want to start letting players try. They'll get you to string those up. So so there's there's always a lot to a lot to do. So a stringer definitely needs is consistency, stamina. stamina, being able to get on with your teammates. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. And as there's stress and you're tired, you have to be able to handle that and keep it inside and not let it out. And affect the other people. And affect other people. You have to be a team member. And often what they say is, 
leave your ego at the front at the door yeah. when you come in here because there shouldn't be any egos. It is about a team effort, and you either live as a team or die as a team yeah. because it is literally that. If if there isn't one bad buzz in there, it'll affect everything and it won't work as a team. No. And with that sort of um, stress, those numbers. You definitely need um, you need to work as a team. So that teamwork is to be a, know how to work as a team, to have a character that is um, not grating. Let's say. Yeah. So if you're a very loud person, well then that's not good either, because then the other people who are in the team maybe they want some quiet or they want you know it should be a, there should be a happy medium. Yeah. And certain stringers are are louder or laugh louder and uh, are cracking jokes all the time, which is good. For a time, so you have to have a, a, a quite a, a character that yeah. that isn't kind of adaptable in a way. Exactly, yeah. so the quality has to be there. Otherwise, um, you're not even like you shouldn't even be thinking about um, to join. Yeah, I mean, sometimes we get someone come in who isn't of the standard that's needed. Well, that's all right. Then we use that person for other things. It could be for doing coaches' rackets. It could be it could be for lots of different yeah, things. Yeah, okay, yeah. But so it's a find a place. A find a place, which is they're still part of the team, so they're still doing an important part. They're just not on that part. No. Which is where you have to really control it. And it's it, it just means, well look, this is how it this is how it is being done. So now you're at this level, mm. look at what we're doing here. And then next year, maybe, you've got a year to, to practice on that, to yes. work on it, and then you'll be at that level. Of course. So it's not, it, it, it isn't a problem where, oh, well, you're, you're not good enough and that's it. It isn't. It's actually, we're showing you what you should be doing. If you're not doing it, that's your fault. Work on it. So if, you're, if you have that sort of character that say, I want to be there, then you will spend the time to improve, to get to there. Because basically you've got the best stringers around you. So if you can't take anything from that or can't learn so that you know where you have to be any given time, then you don't deserve to be there. No. What do you think in general about like the cost of stringing? Because I, I think for to string a racket requires a lot of skill and it takes time. Uh, and usually people pay a lot for it and they don't expect to pay a lot for it, which is weird because if you went to any other kind of industry and you would get a custom job where someone actually do handcraft, on a car or whatever, it would cost a lot of money. But for tennis rackets, it's not not the case. I mean, a plumber is paid however much an hour. Yeah. And without putting club stringers down, I mean, in no way do I want to put a club stringer down. But I mean, a club stringer isn't paid enough. But I mean, at tournament level, yeah, we're paid twenty. It depends. Certain tournaments, twenty-five euros. Others, twenty-two per racket. Per racket. Yeah. Um, but then you've got to take into account that that stringer's got to be paid. They need to eat. They have a hotel room. Of course. Often there's flights involved. So suddenly the costs is everything that is around there. And as you say, the actual whether an electrician, a plumber, what they earn has been going up constantly for let's say for the last twenty years. Yeah. Stringing, you are still at the same place, and sometimes it's actually less than what it was twenty years ago. Even in my shop, there's um, I have a price which is the stringing charge, yeah. but then if they want me to string it, then it's a different price, yeah. and that's it, so which is which I'm fine with. If they're fine with it, fine. If they're not fine with it, they, that's why they've got the normal, they've got the normal price there. Yeah. Shouldn't that be something that the stringing associations should be looking at and saying, it is our responsibility to get the actual craft more, Value. uh, more valued, 
to, to actually make it more respected. So, so that there's actually at the moment there are three associations in the world. There is a Japanese JRSA, the Japanese Racketeering Association. There's the USRSA, mm -hmm. the American one, which is actually the oldest. And then you have the ERSA, the European Racketeering yeah. Association. And the one with the most, let's say, global outreach is the ERSA. Uh, it is translated into um, all the different languages. Whereas, say, the USRSA, they, they tend to expect everyone to speak English. Yeah. Which is okay. The problem is that most people don't say in Europe. In Europe, we have so many different languages that it's impossible for a term. If you want to do the exam, you've got to do it in English. No. Why English? You know, it needs to be done in. So uh, this week or last week, I did a, did one here in Spain, so it was in Spanish. Next week, I'm doing one in France. It will be in French, and yeah. I'll, I'll teach in French. Um, and then obviously, we've, we've got the uh, the Greek managers. It's all done in Greek. Yeah. So it is. That's why, at the moment, ERSA is actually the most well, global, but it's actually the, the most current organization. organization. And because, I mean, Taiwan, we set up Taiwan, we have it in Chinese there. So now there's ERSA China as well, yeah, there's Australia, uh, Canada, yeah. all of uh, Europe, Indochina. So it is, uh, it is Russia, it, it is everywhere, and it is in each different language. And that is, the ERSA really is to give workshops, to teach people, um, to break the coach to player, father to son, which is, this is how I've done it, and now you do it that way. Yeah. And often the mistakes that are being done by the father or the coach keeps on going. It keeps yeah. going until you have that break. Yeah. And that's what the ERSA is trying to do through their workshops. And really, the, we're the, the ones who do the most workshops. There's workshops in every country, pretty much every day of, uh, of the year. Uh, this weekend there was one in Brazil. Um, there's probably one in Italy as well. I didn't have one here in Spain, but next week then there's France. There was, there's in Germany, some, it's pretty much all over the, the place. And how do you, do you join? Like, you have to, how do you become an ERSA member? ERSA member, well you go on the ERSA stringers, ERSA-stringers.com and you can then see the different countries, country yeah. managers, and there's normally a link to take you to the, the country manager, and which means that you can actually converse in your own language. From there, then it's, well, I would like to do a workshop, because I want to improve, I want to invest in myself, which is basically, doing a workshop is investing in yourself. Yeah. It's investing in your craft. In your skill, yeah. Yeah, so, so from there, and then, then it's up to you whether you just want to do the workshop, or if you want to do um, the exams as well, there's a certification, which go from professional stringer. Mm -hmm. Well, just by doing a workshop, you are an ERSA stringer, which means if you're an ERSA stringer, it means that you have invested in yourself. You have done a workshop, so it means that you've seen how it's how it's supposed to be done. Yeah. Then you have professional stringer, which is an exam, which is a written exam and a practical, where you have a string racket with a monofilament, natural guts, crosses here within an hour, in an hour, so it's not particularly um, difficult. You have a, a written exam, which takes an hour. Then you have a change of grommets on a racket, which certain rackets are slightly more complicated. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so if anyone's thinking of doing a, an exam or changing the grommets, don't choose a pure drive or any yeah. of the backlight rackets. They are probably the hardest ones yeah, to do. Yeah, I know that. So, yeah. 
so so sometimes we have someone turn up with that and I said, do you really want to do that? Do you have 20 minutes to change it? Yeah. And with a bad light, you can be the very lucky and do it in five minutes. Yeah, of course. Or half an hour later, you're still struggling. It is, um, it depends. Make a grip enlargement and then the instrument putting uh, a base grip on so that it is absolutely factory flat so that yeah. it feels, um, feels good. So it's, it's a comprehensive test and that's, yeah. the pro, that's the pro to the professional stringer. Then you have master professional stringer level one which is instead of an hour for a string of racket, it's 40 minutes, and you have more questions, and you have questions about manufacturers, technologies, and different things. Um, the gripping and all the rest of it is the same grommets. And then from there, you have a level two now, which is just a little bit more complicated, a few more questions. And so the most professional stringer level two is, is more for the person, the stringer who works in a shop, has to match rackets, yeah, yeah, okay, so it goes into customization and stuff as well. And then you have Pro Tour, then you have, then you have the Pro Tour series of, um, of streaming exams. And they're actually the most looked for certification for people who want to string at tournaments. Okay. So you have the Pro Tour level, Pro Tour level 1, which you have an hour to string three rackets. Mm, 1619. Yeah. And if it's 1820, you have an hour and 15, you have 75 minutes. Yeah. Uh, you have to match two rackets in an hour. You have to string a natural guards around the world um, in half an hour. And of the frames you have to get, of the three synthetics that you do in an hour, you have to get the same DT or maximum one difference. Okay, so quite, uh, yeah. <coughs> so you have to do it quickly and um, professionally. Uh, and professionally, it has to be straight. And then there's the matching, and then so that's the Pro Tour level one. Then you have Pro Tour level two. For people who do, who organise tournaments, whether it's a 250 or 500, their team leader, they actually organise a streaming service in a yeah. tournament. And then the highest one is Master Pro Tour. There are ten of us in the world. I'm uh, honoured to be one of the one of those ten. Mm -hmm. And it is that is one. If you've been streaming Grand Slams for over ten years, you've been organising teams. Um, and you basically are a productive member of the stringing family. Yeah. So you help people and you act in a professional manner. Then you can be invited to, to actually become a, a master pro tour stringer. This year there's um, Paul Skip, has, who's the head stringer at Wimbledon, he's become a master pro tour stringer this year. So, um, is there any ceremony involved, or you get like a there resource? Is, there isn't. There's there's the diploma. Yes. Yeah. You have a certificate, and um, it's it's an honour. Yeah. It's an honour because there are very few in the world, and it, it just means that you are really at the top of. It means that you're helping other people. Yeah. And you're generous with your knowledge. You're generous with your time. You, you help people. So if you're in the stringing room, then you're the one who is actually leading and helping and. It's, it's all to do with that, so it's not just, oh, I can stream better than him, so I should be. It's not, it's a, no. lot, it's a lot more. Do you need to be more of a stringer role model in a way? It is, it's exactly that, it's exactly that. So um, so that's good. So of those, the other stringing association, um, you have the JRSA, they have their certification, which they use, um, often they use the American one. And then you have the USRSA, which has the MRT, the Master Racket Technician, theirs was done quite a few years ago. So. We tend to consider that it's it's not as modern as ours, and that's why we we like ours, and we 
keep pushing. We keep pushing with that. Yeah. So the Pro Tour, and, and it is being improved constantly. It's being modified constantly, which isn't good when we have to keep translating it. No. So obviously I have to keep translating so, into Spanish and French. Yeah. So it, it does take a lot of time, but it means that you are giving the best service to um, to the streamers from yeah. that particular. And it's easier to access for them in case they have issues with the English. Well, Otherwise, it's I mean, it, 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 it is complicated enough without doing it in your own language. So it doesn't matter how good your English is. If there's a slight play on words or the answer, where if it's multiple choice and you have three answers, mm. you really have to understand exactly what it's saying there yeah. to be able to answer correctly. Otherwise, you might be a good streamer and you might know it, but you're going to fail because yeah. you haven't understood either the answer or the... the there's a linguistic the challenge there. Exactly. So, um, so that's why with the ERSA, it is something that is... Um, it's gathering strength, it's recognized pretty much by all the, the bodies, the ITF, there's um, Tennis Europe, all of that, there's a, there's a tie-in starting with, uh, with that with Tennis Europe. And uh, I think there's a presentation at the Davis Cup finals in Madrid mm -hmm. in, well, next month I suppose it is. Yeah, should be. And there, there's a presentation being done by Mark, the chair, the president of the, of the company. And we're actually just setting up ERSA USA as well. But it's been, it's, it's, we had an idea about doing it. Mm. And it looks like we're going to be doing the first workshop in the US um, at the end of March next year. So is that like a competitive organization towards US? Uh, not really, no, it's business. We both, we both, we all do different things. Yeah. So the US RSA are, are there. Mm. And, um, and so are we. Yeah. In the same way that USRSA. You have is, a different approach. To we it, have yeah. a different approach. They do their thing, we do ours, and they're involved in in a few different countries in Europe, yeah. where there's certain people who give their um, their exams. Well, um, we're pretty much all over the place, and we didn't see there was any particular reason not, not to, to go there, not yeah. to be involved in the US. There's a lot of demand there. A lot of people like our certification, the the Pro Tour. Yeah. And there's already quite a few people who who do who already have the Pro Tour um, certification. People that I did uh, I did the exams for while I was at the different symposiums that we were, we were giving, the streaming symposiums that we were doing in, in Florida. Mm. Or we did up until it was up until about two thousand and fifteen, something like that. Two thousand fifteen was the last one that I did. And uh, I was giving quite a few lessons and exams there. So there's already quite a few people who have mm. the certification. And now there's, we just get quite a lot of demand and there's quite a bit of demand at the moment for the one that we're doing in, in March. So we're still looking at... Where is that located? Uh, we think it's gonna be in Florida. All right. So it's the easiest place, it's, it's easy to fly into. Yeah. Um, so there's international, because we do have people who want to go in and fly in from other countries as well. Yeah. So um, and it's how many days? One of those. Yeah, three we days. haven't we haven't actually finalised however many days it is exactly where. I mean, the Tampa area is always good. Yeah. Uh, we might say, I say, well, Orlando is easy to fly into. Just get a hotel there, and in the hotels you can you can book the, the places like a conference room. And you can do exactly, which is what we normally do. So there's either that, or we can find a decent club and and do it in a club, which means that the rackets that are strong, you can actually go on course and do non-core testing with them as well. Yeah. 
which is a positive, so we can work out what uh, what that is. But at the moment, we're in the planning stage. But we have decided on at the end of March, the last week in March, I think it is, which is after Indian Wells. These are not the same. It will be on at the same time as Miami. Strong for pretty much everyone, I guess. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, um, the two years. who I haven't are Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras. Both because they were both using Jay Schreid back in the back in the nineties. So I never um, they just didn't use the streaming services yep. at the tournaments. And since then that I've never been at a, a tournament where the older players um, play and they've been playing. So whether it's Paul, McEnroe, all of them McEnroe tends to stream with his rackets every year at Wimbledon anyway. Yeah. Borg, I mean I've, I've done multiple times and Borg is probably I remember as a little boy watching Wimbledon, him winning there, and I mean, he was he was my idol then. Yeah. And then after him, it was Agassi. So those two players to me have a special meaning. Borg, I've worked with um, quite a quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, pleasure to work with. Him, knows exactly what he wants. Yeah, he says quite specific on that. McEnroe the same. McEnroe doesn't uh, suffer fools gladly. No. If he wants um, his job, his racket has to be done properly. And. And that's it. So I tend, I've never had a never had a problem with him, and uh, he he is. I mean, he's an icon, isn't he? I mean, they say yeah. McEnroe is uh, is is one of the greats. And but yeah, of all of them, then the only two really who I haven't is uh, is Agassi and, and Sampras. Oh, and the strangest uh, requirement you've had from a player? Do you have any examples of like the where you just oh no, this is gonna be. Um, we tend not to talk about what a player asks us. No, I can imagine. We tend, we tend not to. Is that kind of a, a rule you have, like an internal rule you have? Like yeah, keep what, happens, what happens in the room stays yeah. in the room. So, but if you don't mention the player, I mean, you see a lot of like really high tension still, or has um, that changed? Probably? Yeah, well, I mean, it hasn't changed that much. It will, no, it has changed. Mm-hmm. It has changed that much. It's, let's say, the highest is normally Dustin Brown. Yeah. He's normally up about 36 kilos in a, in a pure drive, 36 kilos, Alu Power, uh, rough. And I think he's 36 kilos and he's got a 20% pre-stretch on there. Yeah. That's that's one of the higher ones. Like stiff string, but... <laughs> yeah. And say Venus, I've not been streaming Venus for the last know, how many years at Wimbledon. And she's normally around the 66, 64 yeah. um, pounds. So you're talking about 32, 33, 32 kilos, 33 kilos. That's pretty high these days, yeah. Yeah. And th- so, yeah, about 33 kilos. Now, this year, she came right down. So she was actually, instead of 66, 64, she was streaking 53, 51. Oh, wow. And so then when she played against Coco Golf, she had her rackets came back because they were just a little bit too low for her. And uh, we, we, we all managed to get them all strung really back to her on, on court um, at a higher tension. So she was around 56, 54, but it's still 10 pounds less than she used to. But there's a lot of the players who, because of the modest monofilament strings yeah. that are stiffer, um, they need to bring the tension down. You know, you, you do get uh, a rapport with the, with the players. But they, they know exactly what tension they like, most of these players, yeah. yeah. Because I don't know, and it's all, it's all to do with feel. Yeah. So I mean, the, the actual tension, the kilos might be one thing, might be another, but no. the feel, well, they'll, they'll say that it's too loose or it's too yeah. tight. <coughs> Obviously, different machines give different results. Yeah, well. of course. So it's not just the string, and there's the machine. Mm-hmm. Well, if the machine is, um, you get certain machines that give a higher, a higher DT, a higher tension, because they are stiffer, 
So there's less movement in the columns, less movement in the plate, in the in the in the, um, in the supports. It means that the frame is flexing less. As it's flexing less, that there's less movement around, so there's less change of tension. So yeah. you get certain machines that are um, that give a tighter string bed. Yeah. You just need to know that. You need to work that out with the player who comes. If he's coming from a certain tournament, you need to work out what machines they were using at that tournament. So as soon as you know that, then you will know whether your machines are going to be strictly tight or loose. Mm. So they'll, often a player will come in and say, how are the machines stringing? And then you'd say, normal, where have you come from? What machines were they? And then from there, you can then work out and say, well, here I would say, go down half a kilo or down a kilo or up a kilo because, um, because of the type of machine used before yeah. and the machine that you're using. So it, it depends, you need to have that sort of information. Or you need to keep that in mind, put it that way. So there's obviously there's the weather, depending on where they're coming yeah. from, whether it's hot, cold, altitude, same thing. If they're playing indoor, that was one thing that I actually had uh, with the Australian Davis Cup team. I was with them for the finals in 2000 when they played against Spain. And it was in Barcelona, the Palau San Jordi, and which is a massive stadium. Mm. <coughs> practicing all week, everyone knew their tensions, it was great. Until the day of the match, because suddenly you've got the stadium full, yeah. the temperature goes up five degrees, suddenly the ball's flying yeah. because of the difference in heat. So suddenly it was, at that time, I think it was Leighton Hewitt's frames, suddenly Stoke said, start getting them done. It was the, he had to come up, I think I had to put up, I had to add another kilo or something like that. Yeah. So it was literally there as quickly as possible, at least get one done so it goes straight on court and then just start changing all of them going up. So everyone else um, pretty much went up a kilo yeah. to... Uh, just because of that Just because of the difference way. between an empty stadium and a full stadium when it's indoors. Again, it was a learning curve for me. That was the first major tournament I'd done indoors um, where there was where it was Davis Cup, where you're working with a team. After that, then I knew exactly what to expect. If I was in a in that sort of situation, then I could I could actually advise the players. Well, look, there will be a difference between what is uh, what we're doing now and what will be on the on the day. We need to take that into account. So again, I mean, a string needs to help the player mm. on that side because it's a technical side that that you know, the player might know that might not. Um, the, the players are getting more aware or knowledgeable. More aware, yeah. more knowledgeable, more aware. Of what they're actually using, they're becoming more professional. Yeah. But they, they know it's the one tool they have besides their body, really, yeah. to yeah, yeah, to affect yeah. the game. So yeah. you know, and the strings is such a big part of the racket. So well, it's yeah, I mean, it, it is it is what is touching the ball. Yeah. So so from there, then uh, they are becoming more, and that's why we're seeing more stringing as well. Every year, the stringing is going up. Now, what it is is they they know that the the tension is different. Yeah. And for instance, people changing frames with the chair the ball change. Yeah. It's common now. Yeah, yeah before it used to be like Feather yeah, and used to do Lendl, it. Lendl, Lendl was the one who really started it. Yeah. Lendl and Becker. Because they were very, very um, precise with what their their tension should be. I mean Borg was back in the back in the day as well. But uh, Lendl was very much he was very, very picky on on what his rackets were strung at, how they were strung, all the rest of it. And from then, that it's just got um, better and better. You see, Rafa changes every ch every will change yeah. as well. Stan, um, Roger, you, you go through the most of the world changes. 
is a variable that they're taking out. More and more string stringing at tournaments is because of the tension loss. So they are they are feeling that difference. Yeah. So they're taking they're taking care of that. So whereas before, let's say women tennis women's tennis, it wasn't normal for someone to give you six rackets. No. For a match. Now it is. And that's why suddenly you've got um, you know, streaming services that are going up 15% every year in the number of rackets. Well, so you just keep having, they keep having to have more and more streamers. Yeah. And then you start getting into the thing, well, can we fit them in? Yeah, it changes the requirements of the whole like, venue and everything. And the same thing this year at Wimbledon. This year we were, we went plasticless. So there was no plastic bags for the frames. Oh, okay. There was, unless a, a player specifically asked for it, and then we would give them the plastic bag and they could do what they wanted, they could put the racket in it or whatever it is, but we would give out the racket without a plastic bag. Up until last year, when the rackets were stopped to be picked up, once they'd been strung, they were in a plastic bag and there was a clip that was holding onto the little piece of plastic so it would hold, it would just hang it there. Yeah. So we could fit in the 400, uh, 400 or 500 rackets that were in waiting for collection in, let's say, four meters of space mm. on two different levels. Well, suddenly we, this year, because Wimbledon, they said, right, we're going plastic, because we don't want any plastic bags, given how there's you know, 5,000 bags that will be, won't go into um, the environment. Then the frames had to be clipped in a different way, which means that the clips had to clip onto the frame, which means that the clip was suddenly three times the size. So we need three times the space to stop all of those frames. Ah. So suddenly our streaming room has almost doubled which is good because one thing down the whole the way down the wall are the rackets, but that gives us more space in front to put more machines in. Yeah. So that's why this year we had two more machines. Um, yeah, that makes a big difference, I guess. Yeah. Uh, on the bad days, to have those extra two machines made all the difference. Mm -hmm. So with one thing which obviously had to be solved, the how do we suddenly stop the rackets, how do we hold them, how do we have them so they can be presented to the, to the player and found quite easily, then uh, to, to actually it being a good thing. Mm. So from a problem, so we came out a good thing where we had more space. What, what do you see in um, terms of the, the changes of, of strings now? Do you see any trends besides, the, I mean, I guess lower tensions, which we talked about before? Yeah, lower tensions, but um, shape strings are here to stay. There's yeah. more, more of them. Because as it's all extruded, they can extrude them in any shape they want something that's definitely not going to go away, whether it's rough, whether it's shaped, um, but twisted. Mm. Um, there's so many different variables. I think the trend is going more towards softer, softer mm. um, monofilaments. So monofilaments that are going more towards what a multi-filament is, yeah. without the disadvantages, say, uh, multi-filament. If you hit with topspin, it moves around a lot, and yeah. it stays moved, it doesn't cut, it doesn't, there's no snap back, it doesn't come back into its No, you have to move it back all the time. Exactly, so, and then obviously then you get the durability issues from that as well, from the friction. So, monofilaments, which, monofilaments are used so much today, should they be used by so many players? No. A lot of people are using monofilaments, you should really be using Yeah, I know that's the issue with breaking their uh, elbows and exactly. whatnot. Yeah. You know, shoulder issues, yeah. wrists, the whole thing. So, I mean, monofilaments do have a low elasticity index. Mm -hmm. 
often you'll see someone, you'll see, let's say, a 70 year old man coming in. So, my coach, you know, he recommended RPM Blast at 25 kilos. Yeah. On the Pure or something like that. Yeah. So, you turn around and you say, well, okay. No, don't. Yeah. Yeah, maybe you should think about uh, changing that. Lack of knowledge. Yeah. But there again, a coach isn't a stringer. So then he gets back to, well, the coach should stick to what he's good at, which is coaching yeah. and teaching to him, and then he should actually And maybe he's it. selling something on the side, which there is quite is. common as well. Like, yeah, you should probably play with yeah. this string. And then, uh, yeah, there's that, because so, he's stringing, or he has a has an endorsement by a company, and they say, look, sell this, yeah. which, um, okay, I mean, obviously it, it's going to happen, and it'll never stop. However, um, if the coaches actually had more information, they would be able to give better advice. The the frames also are going ultra stiff, so you're getting rackets to the 72 RA. Yeah. It's like, it is crazy. And then you stick in a stiff string, and you stick it in at a high tension. Yeah. I mean, you're asking for trouble. Yeah. So the tendency is definitely going towards the softer um, monofilaments, um, often without polyester in there, but Whatever, it's just a softer, a softer string, yeah. so it protects the arm more. That's definitely the, te the, the trend. Mm. Is that there's thinner as well, yeah. thinner, thinner strings. Um, I think people are going away from the spin frames as well now. Where suddenly there was all sixteen, fifteen, tends to you know calm down a little bit, and then natural gut in the setup, whether it's in the mains or in the crosses, still very really cool. adds something. Certain, certain players, if they hit, if they hit nicely, hitting with quite a bit of spin, yeah. their natural gut isn't. Uh, it will move around too much; they'll break it too quickly. But putting it in a hybrid, you're definitely getting the benefits of the guts within, um, say, a nice thin monofilament. Yeah. Where the ball, you're still getting enough bite on it; it's not moving around too much. So it's a nice compromise on the on the two. Yeah. So um, yeah, there's the good thing with the hybrids is that there's so much choice and so many variables so you can always find something that works for you yeah, yeah exactly there, there is that and then and the tensions is go as low as possible where people say oh i'm normally stringing at 25 26 kilos okay but then if you can if you can then you can still still hit the ball at 19 kilos yeah. you just can't go from 27 to 19 in one go no. you need to bring it down gradually so that you actually get used to it and, and let the let the string help you. Mm. So um, on the tour, we're seeing so many players under twenty kilos. Mm. Well, also there's so many players on the tour who have problems with who have issues, shoulder, yeah. elbow, and wrist.